Did he write that? Did he write that? Um, he didn't do the John, that was wonderful. There couldn't be anything more appropriate for what I want to try to speak on in a few minutes and what he just sang about. He's good. He really are. That was really excellent. Excellent. And how about that saxophone? And uh, Ed and Sandy... Ed and John Page, have, the two of them, have converted saxophones. And let me tell you, a saxophone is hard to convert. I mean, they like smoke-filled rooms, you know, and late hours, but they have converted it. Wonderful. Well, it has been hot. It has been very hot, and I understand that on September the 1st, it was the hottest day, hottest September the 1st in San Antonio history. Is that right? That's what I heard, at least. Maybe you didn't see the little item in the paper, not very large. You had to look over there in the classified section or buy it in the uh, realtor section. It was a little notice in there that on that hot day, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego left for Colorado. <laughs> they just moved out. The heat got to them. I want to tell you a story, a book, uh, a story I read many, many years ago, and I don't know where it came from, but it's a story uh, reportedly true that they had a contest once to ask artists to paint their concept of a dead church. A number of artists uh, entered their creation. One of them was a picture of a dilapidated tent that had started off as a revival, and it, half of it had fallen down, one of the tent poles had broken, and the weeds had grown up, and there was a sign there saying revival, and it was all blurred and uh, illegible. And that was one of the pictures of a dead church. There was another one submitted, and it was a picture of a very nice uh, building, seated uh, four or five hundred, three or four hundred people, and an educational building. But uh, all the windows were knocked out, uh, the weeds had grown up, uh, the doors had been taken off, uh, there were holes in the asphalt of the parking lot. It was just a terrible, dilapidated uh, picture of a church that uh, the, uh, the painter felt like uh, was a picture of a dead church. There was a third picture submitted, and it was a magnificent building, magnificently appointed, beautiful stained glass windows, all of the finery that you could put into a building. But in a very conspicuous place near the front door of the church, there was just inside, as people would pass on the way in and out, a box on the wall that had a slot in the top where you could put money or an envelope, and on the outside of that box were these words, love offering for missions. That picture won the prize of a dead church. Do churches die? They die. Churches can die. Individual churches die. Now the universal church of Jesus Christ transcending all denominations transcending every race and every place, every land, will never die, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. He's built his church upon the rock, and he's the rock. But local churches, local congregations can and do die. Consequently, because that's possible, God's Spirit motivated 
John the Apostle to write the book of the Revelation. And the first part of it are letters to churches. And the first church is a letter to Ephesus. I spoke about the city of Ephesus on Wednesday night. Uh, it was the best, the best way to describe Ephesus. It would be called the New York of Asia in its day. Some of you have been there with us to visit those incredible Roman ruins. It was a great metropolitan center. It was a great commercial center. It was a great uh, worship center, pagan worship center, a great financial center, a seaport town in that day. And there was a church there. And he wrote a letter to the church. And so you read it a moment ago, but I'm going to go over it again because I want it to stick in our minds and in our hearts. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now that word angel, if you look down there, if you look on page 1216 in the Bible, in the book rack in front of you, or Revelation, as you know, is the last book of the Bible. Turn to the second chapter. It says to the angel, and you'll see the little footnote there. Angel means messengers. The, word is, the Greek word is angelios, which means messengers. Not necessarily some, in some uh, person floating around out there uh, like an angelic uh, creature, but it could be the pastor of the church in Ephesus at that time. It was a messenger, whoever was bringing the message of the Lord to the church at Ephesus. To the angel, to the messenger, to the teacher, preacher, pastor of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work. Now listen, God's talking to his church. God is talking to us as surely as he was talking to the church at Ephesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and they found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. First of all, he commends them. He commends them. He says good things about what you've done. And you have done good things. You've done good works. You've been busy in my work. Good deeds. You have persevered. You have kept the faith. You have kept people true to the proclamation of the good news. You've been true to the faith. He compliments them. They had had every conceivable opportunity to be a strong church. The church was established by Paul on his second missionary journey. He just barely stopped there, but he then had Priscilla and Aquila stay there and to begin teaching the people in Ephesus. Then he went on back, came back on his third missionary journey and stayed there longer than he stayed anywhere else in his ministry, any church in his ministry. Two years and three months he pastored in Ephesus. Along with him was Timothy. When he left, he left Timothy as the pastor. John, the apostle, was there, and in all probability, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there, and they point out the spot where Mary lived and where she died. Because you remember, when Jesus died on the cross, he gave John the responsibility of taking care of his mother. And then, now, you want a church staff? You've got Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, Timothy, the apostle John, and the mother of Jesus. You can have the best staff in all the world. You can have the best preachers that ever preached the gospel. And they did have that. And they did great works, wonderful works. When John was an elderly man, having been 
exiled to Patmos for a long period of time where he wrote this book, the book of Revelation. When he came back, he was an elderly man, and they say that they would carry him into the church when the church met, and though he was elderly and feeble, he would say one sentence over and over each time that he came, little children love one another. I wonder why he said that. I've tried to think about that and question in my mind why he was impressed to say that. I think John, being the sensitive, perceptive disciple that he always was, could pick up their spirit. And he saw the deadening, destructive spirit of lovelessness creeping into the church. And any time it does, it is a fatal virus. Victor Hugo wrote an interesting story entitled 93. It's a story of a naval vessel many years ago fighting a terrible storm. The storm outside was about to capsize the ship. It was going through terrible seas, great swells, great waves. And then suddenly, down in the hole of the ship, down below the waterline, below decks, a cannon had broken loose. And when the seas and the swells would toss the ship around like a cork, that cannon would roll over against one bulkhead and then over against another and back and forth. And the captain of the ship sent men down to try to secure that cannon. That loose cannon below the water line would destroy that ship. The biggest storm was not outside. The biggest storm was inside. And that's the issue the church faces today. The biggest potential storm the church faces is not the pagan world that's out there that needs to be reached. It's a loveless church with a loose cannon down below the waterline that can make that ship sink, and it sank at Ephesus. They died. The church died. It is no more. Speaking of ship, second chapter of the book of Acts, after Pentecost, 3,000 people were converted at Pentecost, and listen to what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. That's what we're in here. We're in a ship. It's a ship of faith. Barbara Tuckman wrote a great book, The Ship of Fools. This is a better book. It's a ship of faith. And it's to be a fellowship. And we are not supposed to have any passengers on this ship. This is not a luxury cruise. Everybody is to be in the crew. Now, you may not be able to do as much as you used to. Even if you're aged and infirm, you can have an incredible ministry of prayer intercession. You can use your telephone. No one ever gets mustered out of this crew. We're all members of the fellowship. They remain devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, everyone. Now notice the inclusiveness in this. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miracles were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. Hear that? Together. Had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together, 
in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a ship like that, a fellowship like that, where people supported one another and encouraged one another and affirmed one another and loved one another and pulled for one another. That's why the church grew in the first century. They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a Bible for the first couple of hundred years. The fastest growing period in the life of the church was done mouth to mouth, person to person, heart to heart. It was the spirit that was there. It was the spirit of inclusive love that that drew people in to the fellowship. Spirit and truth are inseparable. Spirit and truth are inseparable. They are one and the same. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, they that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. I am excited and thrilled and grateful for the revival that's taking place in America in terms of interest in spiritual things. That is important, and I'm glad to see it. We need it in all of our lives. I'm reading a book right now by a Catholic uh, lay leader on contemplative prayer. It's helping me. There's a great spirit of... uh, of uh, revival going on, revival of the Spirit. That is wonderful, but there is something to be cautious about. And that thing to be cautious about is if the Spirit gets separated from the truth, it will spin off into terrible excesses and be destructive to itself. You must never... Someone has defined a heresy as a truth taken to an extreme. We must be filled with the Spirit. But the Spirit must always be conditioned and guided and led by the truth as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and as revealed in His Word. You separate the truth, you separate the Spirit from truth, you burn down the house. If you just emphasize Spirit, it spins off into excessiveness. If you separate the truth over here by itself, it becomes cold and legalistic and ritualistic. The two must go together. The best analogy or metaphor that I have for it is the human body. You have both a skeleton and you have flesh. They exist together. They cannot exist without one another. And what the, what the bones are to the body, the truth is to the spiritual body. And what the flesh is to the body, the spirit is to the body of Christ. The two go together. If you separate them, all you have over here is a pile of bones that they use out at the med school to point out the skeletal system of the human body. And over here, you just have a few pounds of flesh and muscle and bone and blood. That's it. They must go together. They are inseparable. Spirit and truth must be together in equal quantities. They must be together for what God has put together. Let no man, no church put asunder. Spirit and truth. The early church in Ephesus had more heat than light. Some do. They had more light than heat. Did any of you have the opportunity to ever hear Vance Havner? Vance Havner was a North Carolina preacher. He spoke here many years ago. We heard him, Martha and I heard him at Ridgecrest and uh, campus meetings around. Did any of you ever hear Vance Havner? Some of you did. There were some in the earlier service that did. Um, he, had a, he had a North Carolinian twang. He had a naval kind of talk. And I can hear him saying it now. I wish I could imitate him. I can't. Like, you can be straight as a gun barrel theologically and just as empty. <laughs> Soak in the church. 
We can be true to Baptist principles and biblical principles and what we believe in and what we're committed to. And if that's all we concentrate on, we are dead as a doornail. Or if we ignore the truth and spin off out here into excessive emotionalism without the truth guiding us and directing us, we have divided what God put together and it will die. And so he commends the church and then he condemns the church. He says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. That's what it actually says. Not just first love. You have abandoned the love you had at first. J.B. Phillips said, and I quote, Activism and orthodoxy cost too much if bought at the price of love. We can see all these wonderful things happen. Great works. Try to hold true to the faith and what we teach and preach and sing. But if we don't have love, we're dead. The Apostle Paul, who wrote that magnificent chapter, 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, don't you know he preached that at Ephesus? Love is patient, love is kind. Love is not envious, love is not bought itself, does not parade itself. Love never fails. You can have wisdom, you can have knowledge, you can have preaching, you can speak with the tongues of men and of angels. But if you don't have love, you're a zero. You're nothing. Oh, yes, the institution will go on because it has some momentum. The building will still be there. Programs will still be there. There will still be activity, but no souls being saved, no lives being renewed, no homes being restored, no children being directed in the way of the Lord. It's dead. And you can write Ichabod over the front door. The Lord hath departed. It can happen to us. Without love, it will happen to us. Now, you can preach about it all day long, you can read about it all day long, but until you and I ask God to restore the kind of love we had when we first met Him, we'll never have it. I can't, I can't preach it into you. This book cannot read it into you. Let me ask you, what... I was thinking this morning, and I was thinking between the services, I sat there and recalled in my mind the Sunday I accepted Jesus as my personal Savior publicly. It was the First Baptist Church of Dallas. I can remember it vividly. My mother and father were always sat up in the balcony. I came down by myself. Dr. Truitt had preached, and I'd been in to see him and to talk with him. So he knew I was coming, and he met me. And I sat on the front row, and then he introduced me Martha had the same experience years later when she made her commitment to Christ in that same place, in that same pastor. I walked up to Dr. Truett, and he had the kindest face, strong combination of great strength and great compassion. I thought he looked like Jesus. I mean, Jesus had to look like Dr. Truett. And he put his arm around me and had me sit down there on the front row, and then he introduced me, and he said, this lad, that was one of his favorite terms. That's a Scottish term, lad and lassies, you know. This lad... Buckner Fanning, parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, all part of this church. 
He's come this morning to accept Jesus as his personal Savior. You remember that when that happened to you? Did that happen to you? It can. You may be past nine years of age, but listen, wherever you are right now, you can begin again. You can have a new beginning. Oh, I had more, more experiences in my life. I rededicated my life publicly a number of times when I felt God calling me to preach. And I asked God all the time to keep my heart warm. John Wesley came to America to uh, establish an orphanage in Georgia, and it was a dismal failure, and he went back to England very, very discouraged and depressed. There were a group of Moravians on the ship when he was going back, and they got in a storm, and he was greatly impressed about how calm they were in the midst of a storm. When he got back to England, back to London, he went to a meeting house. Uh, I believe it was a group of Moravians. They were meeting house, and they were reading something there. I think they were reading something from Luther's commentary on Romans. I'm not sure about that. But Wesley said he felt his heart strangely warmed. Will you let God strangely warm your heart, my heart, our hearts? John Wesley said, Oh God, set me on fire so people might come to see me burn. He said to preachers, preach as a dying man to dying men. Jeremiah, discouraged and depressed, punished, persecuted, he wanted to give up. And then he says, I can't give up. I've got this fire in my bones. He wants to bring that fire of love and grace and peace and outreach to other people into our hearts and our lives individually and corporately. He warns us if we don't, he will take himself away. He commands, he condemns, and then he commands. Look at that fifth verse. Three imperatives of the Christian life. This is a sermon in a sentence, succinctly stated, three imperatives of Christianity. Look at that fifth verse. Remember, remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember what it was like when you first loved Christ. Remember what it was like when you were sharing him with other people. Remember when you had a warm heart for other people. Remember when you affirmed one another rather than criticized one another. Remember when you were positive rather than negative, Pick, picking people up rather than putting them down. Remember where you have fallen from. Remember. You know the story of John Newton. I'm sure most of you know the story of John Newton. If you don't, I re quickly refresh your memory. John Newton was a sea captain of a slave ship, a vile, depraved, violent man, as far from God as about any man could get. And his, show, his ship was in a terrible storm, and he cried out to God, said, if there's a God there, I need mercy and save me. And God came into his life, and John Newton became an incredible minister of the gospel in Great Britain. Taught himself Latin, taught himself Greek, 
preached the gospel, but he is most remembered by most of us as the man who wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Now, John Newton had a verse, verse of Scripture in large, large letters framed over his mantle in his home. And this is what he had there. It is from the book of Deuteronomy. It is what Moses says to himself and to the people of God. He says it five times, the 5th chapter, 15th chapter, 16th chapter, and the 24th chapter. A total of five times in those few chapters alone. He says, you shall remember. You were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeems you. Remember, 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 remember. You were a slave, 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 slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you, redeemed you, redeemed you, redeemed you, redeemed. How glad, how glad I am. Redeemed, how glad to sing it. How redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by his infinite mercy. Redeemed and his child forever I am. Fanny Crosby said it. Redeemed. We were bought at an incredible price. If that doesn't warm your heart and restore your life of warmth and fellowship and love for one another, I believe it's impossible for us to continue effectively if we don't have that throbbing heart of love for one another. Remember and repent. What does repent mean? Well, it just means to turn around. If you're going to Dallas, you turn around and come back. That's repentance. It means about face. It means you're walking along to the rear march. And if you don't turn around, you get run over. You get run over. Uh, because you keep running into people who are turning around and going the other direction. That happens to you in life. If you don't turn around, you get run over. You get run over by life, by fear, by disappointment, by discouragement, by faithlessness. Sam Jones, the old Methodist evangelist, my grandmother used to hear him. I never heard him, but uh, she said he was a great big man with a big handlebar mustache. And he would say, one of the things he would say over and over again, he said, quit your meanness. Just quit your meanness. Isaiah says it more diplomatically. Cease to do evil, learn to do well. Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, care for the fatherless, help the widow. Have you ever looked at the little book of Mark, the first gospel that was written, and it's very succinct. It moves along very quickly. It talks about the prophecy, about the baptism of Jesus, and about the temptation of Jesus. And still in the first chapter, and the 14th verse, he says this. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. This is Jesus speaking. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. Repent. Turn around. You've been walking in legalism and judgmentalism. That's what most of them had been doing. Repent. Turn around and believe the good news. Believe the gospel. Repent. And the third word, the third imperative of Christianity, first, remember, Repent and do. Do something because your heart is warm. 
Do something. Because you've turned your life over to him. Do something. Translate it into action, in deed, in ministry to one another. If we don't, as a church, follow the caution given us by the Spirit of God through this incredible book, if we don't, you know what he does? He says, if you don't do this, repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. What does that mean? He's going to take away our light. What do you do with light bulbs that are burned out? You keep them in a the closet, collect them, look at them, think, oh, wasn't it wonderful, the light we used to have. Try to sit there and read by a dead lamp. What do you do with it? You deal with it what he did with the church at Ephesus. Took away their light. Well, they were walking on for a while, walking in darkness, but they walked along for a while, and then they were history. And history can repeat itself. I spoke for four days a couple of years ago at St. John the Divine Episcopal Church in Houston. Had a wonderful time. And uh, was there and preached on Sunday morning and then Sunday night through Wednesday night. And then after the service, after I'd finished speaking on Wednesday night, uh, the rector, the priest, minister at that church, wonderful man and friend, said, uh, after the messages we've heard, and we did, have, we did have wonderful response in terms of people attending. Would you feel impressed, some of you feel impressed to come up here to the altar where I and the other ministers or priests of the church and Buckner will all be standing behind this railing. If you want to come up and talk with any of us individually or just want to come up and pray, the organ will play softly. We'll just remain seated and you stand up as you feel God's spirit impressing you to come. Well, I was, I didn't know what to expect. One by one, people started getting up, and over 50 people came. Two men came up, two businessmen, obviously very successful businessmen, living in River Oaks. They came up arm in arm, both of them crying, and they came to me and said, you made a statement, one man said to me, you made a statement that God used to convict me. You quoted Doug Harmershow from his book, Markings, when he said a man at war with himself will be at war with everyone around him, he said, that was me. I've been at war with myself, therefore I've been at war with everybody around me. And I've signed a peace treaty with God. And I looked across the sanctuary and saw my friend that I'd not spoken to for five years, an old friend from school days. And I went over there to him and said, I ask you to forgive me. And I want you to know I love you. And they came up together and knelt and cried and prayed together. Remember. Repent. Do. For when love walks out, God walks out. Lord, 
Use your word and the evidence of history and the power of your spirit to help us remember, repent, and do. Restore in us that first love devotion for you, for your work, and for your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be here at the front. You come, you want to speak to me, fine. You may want to come and kneel and talk to God alone. You may want to come with somebody else and pray with them or for them. You may want to come and accept Christ as your Savior. I'd urge you to do that. I urge you to do that. You'll never regret that moment. Never. In the endless eternity that stretches before us all, you will never regret it. Never. Or to come be a part of this church and help us be a better fellowship. A fellow in the family of Christ. I'll be here to greet you. Let's stand, let's sing.